Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are back in our study of the book of 1 Peter about hope in the midst of suffering. We come to a passage of Scripture that is one of the most challenging in the New Testament, possibly in, in all of Scripture. I'd like us to read these verses together and then make a few comments about that. Chapter 3, verse 18 in 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the film of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into the heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Yeah, verse 18 has been called one of the simplest, most clearest uh, statements of the gospel. And we looked at that in detail a few weeks ago before we uh, took some detours in, in this season of missions and, and uh, Mother's Day. But verse 18 clearly stating the truth is easy to follow. But then in verse 19 and 22, most commentators agree that this is the most difficult New Testament passage. I've counted 18 major interpretations of these verses, 19 through 22. 18. Now, I went to my go-to guys. You know, I have in my library and on my computer nine, about nine scholars that I go to to see how they would interpret it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to look at these nine conservative biblical scholars, and they're going to help me with this passage. And I couldn't get those nine guys to line up in what they understood this passage to say. William Barclay said this is one of the most difficult in the Bible. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. A wonderful text is this. A more obscure passage, perhaps, in, in, than any other in all the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. One pastor said he was taught in seminary that whenever you use an illustration, if you have to explain the illustration, you need to find another illustration. What Peter is doing in 19 through 22 is he's illustrating verse 18 and the verses ahead of that. And that one pastor said he wished Peter had picked another illustration. But it's inspired by God. God led Peter to select that, so we're going to try to look at this. Now, just some background. Remember we said that Peter was writing to the church at large in the midst of persecution. It was a letter that was circulated in the churches of Asia Minor, the area that's now Turkey. It was sent from Rome, which is alluded to as Babylon in, in Peter's letter, and it was sent to the persecuted Christians. And the great persecution in Rome happened in 64 AD, right about this time. So there was a, a time of trial, a time of difficulty, a time of persecution, political, social, all of this unrest. That's the climate that Peter wrote in. And in the midst of suffering, he says, you can stand firm. So there's pressure to conform. Peter is saying, I want you to stand firm. So Peter is trying to illustrate for us what it means to stand firm, 
to give a, uh, remember he said to always be ready to give an answer to the hope that is within you. We looked at that in, in the earlier verses. So he's saying stand firm in the midst that you can have a testimony. So the main point for the readers of Peter's letter, you don't have to be afraid of persecution. When it comes your way, you can stand firm and have a testimony. You'll be rewarded. So Peter uses Christ as the example, and he uses Noah as the example. So let's try to look at this. Um, Peter's wanting to encourage them, even though it's difficult, you can bear witness in your suffering. That's why I titled the message, Testifying Through Suffering. Maybe you're there today. Maybe it's not as extreme as where Peter's readers were, but you're going through difficulty for the cause of Christ because of your stand. And the word of God is challenging us through Peter's words here to remain steadfast. You will be rewarded one day. Christ suffered. He was exalted. Noah suffered persecution, and God ultimately rewarded him. I was reading a a pastor in Texas, Jim Dennison, had gone overseas to East Malaysia, and he had gone to a church plant, and uh, that day was supposed to be a day where they celebrated baptism, and a young lady, a teenager, came up and and testified her faith in Christ, and they baptized her, and and Dennison noticed over uh, outside the church a bunch of luggage. Some luggage was there, and he asked the pastor, what's the deal with the luggage? And he said, that luggage belongs to that young teenager we just baptized because her father told her if she professes faith in Christ, she can't come back home. So she packed her bags for her baptism to say, I'm stepping out to follow Jesus. That's the kind of climate that Peter is writing to to help us understand. So if you're taking notes, number one, Christ was faithful through suffering. So Christ is faithful. The Father vindicates him. We're going to look at our faithfulness too. Number one, Christ was faithful through suffering. We've looked at this already. Chapter, uh, verse 18 there says that Christ suffered on our behalf. Christ suffered, the Bible says, for our sins once for all. The righteous, he's the holy one, the righteous one, perfect, sinless sacrifice for the unrighteous, those of us who are sinners. He suffered on our behalf. Sometimes we go through difficulty in life and we say, you know what, I don't deserve this. And then you think about Think about um, Christ and what he went through at the cross. He definitely didn't deserve it. Yet he endured it for us in our place. Uh, In our behalf, Christ suffered for us. Secondly, Christ testified through his suffering. This is the heart of what Peter's trying to say there. In the midst of his suffering, and if you want to go back several weeks, you can look at the sermon on on, uh, verse 18 there where we talked about the gospel. Christ testified through his sufferings. Now, here's where it gets difficult. Verse 19, at least difficult for me to understand. In that state, as it describes his his, uh, crucifixion, in that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. What is Peter talking about there? Again, 18 different uh, approaches to this. Nine of conservative scholars are not really clear on what Peter's saying there. First of all, I would say it's clear that he does not mean that Christ descended into hell to do battle with Satan. I've heard that taught. That's where Christ won our salvation. He went to Satan and fought him on, on, on his own ground, on his own turf in hell, and rescued us there. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that Christ went, some have taught that he went and gave a second chance to those people who, who rejected Christ. So there's a teaching that comes out of this scripture and other scriptures. It does not mean that. There is no second chance. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So just three uh, Trying to summarize three views of this. One view is that, that Christ did go to Hades, the place of the dead. And at that place, he, he proclaimed 
between his death and resurrection to Noah's contemporaries. Another say that when it, it mentions Christ uh, proclaiming to the spirits in prison that it was back in the days of Noah, because verse 20 talks about that, that Christ preached by his spirit uh, through no, to Noah's contemporaries. But the, the majority of scholars believe this is what, he's, what verse 19 means, that Christ proclaimed his victory and judgment on the cross to fallen angels. That's the majority view of conservative scholars there. Again, it's divided in a couple of groups there. Some that say it took place between his death and resurrection. Others say that it took place after the death, resurrection, and into the ascension. Again, I'm not sure. So I'll just say it this way. As we look at Christ testifying that between his death and resurrection, or after his death and resurrection, Christ went to Hades, the place of the dead. Not hell, but the place of the dead. And made proclamation of his victory over sin, death, Satan, and demonic spirit, uh, spirits. And then that is confirmed in his ascension. So Christ's testimony is at the cross, he defeated sin. In the resurrection, he defeated the grave. And someplace in there, as scripture is telling us and it's not clear, he made proclamation that he was victorious over sin, death, the grave, and Satan. So that's my best understanding of what it means that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those demons, those, those uh, fallen angels who had rejected and had battled, he, he proclaimed victory over that. By the way, when Jesus said it on the cross, those words, it is finished, it wasn't just that he was giving up his physical life. He was saying that the, the atonement had been made for sin. It is finished means I have been victorious over sin. And ultimately, he would be victorious in the resurrection over death and the grave. Testifying. So Peter's saying, look at the example of Christ. In his death, burial, and resurrection, he testified in the midst of suffering. And thirdly, Christ was vindicated through his resurrection and his ascension. He was vindicated. Look at verse 21 again with me. Baptism in which corresponds to this now saves you not the removal of flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. That's the vindication. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ... And ultimately, by his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father, he accomplishes and is vindicated for his suffering. It's as if God the Father is saying to the Lord Jesus, well done. Remember the story, the, the, uh, the parable of the talents in the New Testament where the, the master said to his servant, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of my Lord. That, that's what this vindication is. The Father is vindicating the Son. So Peter uses that as an example. Do you remember in Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus, uh, where uh, Paul writes about Jesus coming and humbling himself to become a man, but then that whole passage ends up with God has exalted him above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the exaltation. That's the, that's the vindication. So Peter is saying, you, you'll be vindicated if you suffer, and he puts Christ in as the example. Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and at some place between the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, he makes his proclamation to the demonic world that he is victorious over them. God ultimately, seated at the right hand of the Father, has vindicated him. So Peter wants us to know, if you're faithful and you go through the suffering and the difficulty, you'll come out on the other end and you'll be vindicated. The example is Christ. Then Peter gives us another example with Noah. So number two, and let's make this practical application here, we can give a faithful testimony through suffering when we trust God. A faithful testimony through suffering when we trust God. 
I don't know anybody that, that gets excited and jumps up and down for joy saying, oh boy, I get to suffer today. I'm excited. I can hardly wait to see how I'm going to hammer today. But we can, as a follower of Christ, say, in the midst of it, I'm going to trust God. I may not be able to trace what he's doing, but I'm going to trust him. I used to have a little plaque on my, uh, on my wall in my office that said, when you cannot trace the results, trust the Redeemer. We can trust him. You may not be going through what Peter's readers are going through. You may not be suffering the persecution of the Roman government, but you may be struggling in your faith as you try to take a stand for him. You can be sure that when you trust God, there will be a faithful testimony. So let's break that down. I think I've got three points there, right? First of all, we will testify through baptism. We get this opportunity as followers of Christ to testify through baptism. And baptism is a public identification with Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. One reason why we as, as followers of Christ in the Baptist tradition baptized by immersion is because baptism pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It also pictures what happened to us when we trusted Christ. We were buried with him and we were raised to have a new walk with him. That's that picture there. So Peter says... In verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this. Now let's go back to verse 20. What is he talking about corresponding with? He speaks of those spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. So he takes this picture of Noah. And by the way, you would, cannot imagine how many different understandings of what that means. Saved by water. Does the water save? Is what, my understanding is it's the ark that saved Noah, but ultimately it was Noah trusting in God in the ark. Does that make sense? So he gives this picture, just like God rescued Noah, he's going to rescue you. Many of Peter's readers had made a commitment to Christ, but they had not publicly been baptized by immersion as a testimony that they identified with Christ. It may be that Peter's writing here to say to those folks, you've, you've made a testimony that you've trust Christ, but now you need to go to the next step and make it public. You may need to pack your luggage and take it to church with you like that teenager did that Jim Dennison saw. It, it may be that you're to that place, Peter's writing to them, where you need to now say, I'm going to give it all and I'm going to publicly profess Christ by believer's baptism. That may be what Peter is trying to address here. I was reading some church planners in, in Asia. I'm not sure what country it was. It's, I think it's one of those uh, countries where we're not supposed to talk about our missionaries being there. But it was a primarily Hindu country. And the, the church planners there decided that they needed to start asking some questions of their new converts before they baptized them. Seven questions that these churches ask. I'm going to read them to you. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go to the village and to those who persecute you, forgive them, and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? And the last question, are you willing to die for Jesus? Now how about if we asked every person before we baptized them those seven questions? Why did they have to ask those in that Asian culture? Because that, they, were, they were being persecuted and they needed to be sure that when they publicly professed Christ, they were willing to suffer the consequences. Peter may have had a very similar list. Those churches could be asking those same questions under the Roman persecution. So he gives this picture of baptism and uses Noah as a, as a loose analogy 
And, and I really want to underscore loose analogy because it breaks down and we begin to try to say what's the water, what's the ark, uh, what, is, what does it all mean? Basically for me, my understanding is that, that Noah passed through the waters of the flood by being rescued in the ark when he trusted Christ so that Peter could say he was saved through water. The water didn't save him. By the way, the water for Noah's day was, a, was, a, was judgment, wasn't it? Water in Noah's day meant death to the rest of the world who rejected God. Some have taken this to say the water of baptism pictures death, and I think that might be a good picture. But the saving through, through the water, I believe, means that he passed through it because of God's uh, victorious provision of the ark. And then Peter clarifies in, um, in verse 21 there, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but a pledge of a good conscience towards God. I believe Peter's trying to say, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash away the filth of the flesh. It doesn't wash away sin. So he has to be, I believe, talking about the commitment that we make to Christ that is ultimately evidenced in baptism. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Baptism doesn't send you to heaven. It is a public testimony of what's already happened in your life. So Peter's trying to help us understand that part of it, that baptism does not save you. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes about this. And I would like us to look at that. Because there is a... Um, an interesting to me connection between the actual baptism where we're placed in Christ as a believer and the water immersion baptism where we picture that. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we no longer could be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. This is this picture. Let me go back to verse, I want to start in verse 3. I'm sorry, I started in verse 6, didn't I? Are you all confused? How about verse 3? All right. When Paul says, shall we sin? Absolutely not. Verse 3. Or are you unaware, here we go, that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so you too may walk in a new way of life. For we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then verse 6 that I read earlier kind of explains that. So baptism pictures the death of the old self and being raised to a new life in Christ. I think that's the key there. Let me read you some statements about baptism from some of these scholars. Baptism represents a complete break with one's past life. The flood pictured that in Noah's day. Baptism requires that, a break with the old sinful world. It pictures one, one's break with the old and entrance into the new. Someone else said that water baptism doesn't save, but baptism of, with water symbolically depicts a changed life of a person who's consciously at peace with God through faith in Christ. I like that. Another said, entering the ark with Noah is likened to identifying with Christ through baptism. And then someone else said it this way, the waters did not save Noah, the ark did. Only baptism by the Holy Spirit can provide that clear conscience before God. So I believe this, this statement is that Noah professed that he trusted Christ. The ark was this, this, this rescue. And when we trust Christ and profess, profess that faith in Christ, baptism pictures that. I hope that's clear, but I cling to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one could boast. There's no way that Peter could be saying that baptism is going to wash away your sins. I believe he's giving an analogy that baptism pictures that decision we've already made, that pledge that we've made to receive Christ. Secondly, secondly, we testify through baptism. I belong to Christ now. I've been put to death. I have a new life. Secondly, we testify through holy living in a sinful world. We testify through holy living in a sinful world, in a in a culture that goes against us, that is a, opposed to us. We live this swimming against the flow, this countercultural life as followers of Christ. It's, this, it's implied, as you think about Noah and the ark, Noah is building this ship when there wasn't an ocean for the ship to float, and it's on dry land. He's building this huge ship, and however many years it took him, a, 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 probably some have said between 60, 75, 100 years, as Noah's building this ark, the people around him are opposing him. They're ridiculing him. They're calling him a fool. And all that time he is remaining steadfast and living a holy life in the midst of that sinful world. So by his godly life, he's preaching to that generation around him who opposed him. Peter is, I believe, implying to us that just as Noah stood against persecution, your holy life will also be a testimony and a witness to others in spite of opposition. I tell you what, every time I read another news story or hear another news story on the radio about how our cultural is, culture is opposing us, it just, I just, I grieve. Recently uh, read the story about the San Antonio, the city council, councilman that, that proposed to uh, eliminate Chick-fil-A from the airport because of the stand that Chick-fil-A is making on biblical values. And they say that, that they're trying to say we're an inclusive city, and now there's all kinds of lawsuits and stuff going there. I'm thinking, what, what kind of world do we live in when you take a stand for Christ and people say, well, you can't be here anymore? That's the opposite of tolerance, isn't it? I read a debate on Facebook a while back. A mom posted a picture, a grandma posted a picture of her kids praying at their prom before they ate a meal. And something like, it's great that we have kids like this. And it got a firestorm of criticism about you hypocritical Christians. And it just went on and on. It page after page. I didn't read it all, but it was you just kind of scroll down. It even made a news story. What kind of world do we live in where you say, I'm going to pray, and people ridicule you for that? That's the world we live in. When I was in England, we went to York on a Sunday afternoon. I'm pretty sure it was York. And uh, the church... All those little communities in England have huge churches. You can see the, the, the tower, not a steeple, it's usually a tower. And we went to the church and the crowd was gathering there. And the closer we got, we thought, this is going to be one of those churches we're going to get to see. Sunday afternoon, people were waiting in line to get in church. And they were paying money to get in the church because it was now a museum. It kind of broke my heart. I thought, how ironic is this? They're waiting in line to pay money to see something that's dead that has closed its doors. That's the culture we live in. Through holy living, not holier than thou. Do you know what I mean by that? Not I'm better than you are and I'm more spiritual than you are and I'm, you're a sinner and I'm not, but, but, but being steadfast and immovable and clinging to Christ will make a difference in testifying in the, this, this lost world. And then lastly, if we are faithful, God will vindicate us. If we are faithful, God will vindicate us. Noah stood 
faithful. And God vindicated him. Opposition, ridicule. Peter's point is clear. You followers of Christ, the, the readers of 1 Peter, us today as we read it, we are in the minority. The culture is going a different way than we are going. If you will remain steadfast, God will vindicate you if you're faithful. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in verse 4, Peter mentions the fact that they shouldn't be surprised that the culture shouldn't be surprised that you, you don't want to plunge into the same flood of wild living. He, he says the culture is expecting you to just immerse yourself in their sinfulness and they'll be surprised when you don't. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. God will vindicate you. I was reading about Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening in the 18th century in America. Popular, theologian. People traveled great distances to hear Edwards preach and teach. And he began to challenge his congregation to move beyond just showing up and being a church sitter member. And he began to challenge them to know that they for sure had received Christ as Savior. Started putting the pressure on them that they knew that they had trusted Christ. And they, a faction ran him out of that church. And he ended up in a small uh, country church not, not, uh, not too no- notable. And he became criticized by all those people that didn't like his message. But he stayed faithful and he continued to preach that message, even in a smaller congregation. And ultimately, Edwards was affirmed and vindicated as preaching the truth. And I thought, that's a picture of us where people may not understand. We may be ridiculed. We may be run out. But if we just stay faithful, God will honor us. And we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So I'm going to close with three questions. They're not in your outline. Some of you already folded up. Ready to go home? Maybe on the back, write these three questions, okay? I know. I know. Number one, have I truly trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? See, Peter is writing, and he says Christ died for you. He bore your sin for you. He died in your place. So the question is not, am I a church member? Not, have I been baptized? Not, am I faithful in attending and and going to Bible studies? But have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? That you're not trusting in yourself. By that I mean you're not trusting in anything you can do to get to heaven. It's all what Christ has done for you. The hymn we used to sing, Rock of Ages, there was a line in it, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Can you say that? That I'm not trusting in anything I've done, but only what Christ has done. Second question, have I testified to my faith in Christ publicly through baptism? Have I testified to my faith in Christ publicly through baptism? I was reading about Adoniram and Ann Judson, two missionaries who, uh, as newlyweds, went to India from Massachusetts. And as they were traveling by ship to go to India, these I think they were Congregationalists, these these two began to study the Bible in its original languages and discovered that they had never really been baptized by immersion. And they, they got to India and contacted William Carey and said, you know, we're here, we're missionaries, but we've never been baptized by immersion. We need to do that. It says to me, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how spiritual you are, there, there are times when you come and you realize, I haven't done what I need to do. Have you done that? So that you're publicly identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then number three, 
Am I standing faithfully for Christ in my daily life? Am I steadfast, immovable like Noah in my daily life, my home life, my school, my workplace, my community? Am I standing faithfully? I'm going to close with this. It's called the Fellowship of the Unashamed. It's been credited to pastors in a couple of different African countries, so I don't know the origin of this, but but I want you to hear it, okay? This This is a statement of where we should be. I am part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence. I learn by faith. I love by patience. I live by prayer, and I labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach, and, preach until all, all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. My prayer is that we could be the fellowship of the unashamed. Let's pray together.